I want to tell you guys a short story. When I became an elder of Redeemer Church a few years ago, uh, I was faced with my one of my first real tests. Um, Lauren Haynes invited me to uh, go to the church office, and she had a camera. And I didn't know what she was doing, and she, she said, would you please make the following sound effects? And... She, she said, uh, make, make the sound effect of a lightsaber and of a, of a helicopter. And I don't know what else it was. But as, as a new elder, all the elders were doing this as a new elder, I, I failed miserably that test. And, and it was displayed for everyone to see um, a few days later. And, and so thank you, Lauren, for that. Um, that is also my uh, plug. In a few weeks, we're going to have a talent show here. And, and uh, I hope that that video is not played. But... But um, or anything like it with me involved, but um, but I do. Uh, it was going to be a great night of, of fun and encouragement and fellowship in a few weeks, and and so I did want to make a, a plug for that. Uh, it's November 16th, Saturday um, night. We're going to eat together, enjoy a fun night together. It's always been a good time when we do that. But like I said, I failed miserably. I failed miserably in in my tests, and I I am not one to make sound effects. Um, my sound effects just kind of all sound the same. I, I, I have one effect that I can make with my voice, and, and so I failed in that. Truth is, we often fail. Um, as the people of God, this is, this is the reality I want to, to actually focus in on right now, is that we often fail. We, we, even as we read that membership covenant, I, I just reading it through and just thinking, how many of those I'm failing at right now? I mean, just, just how many of those things I am, I am not doing the way I ought to be doing. I'm just, just confronted with, with my failure in different areas in worship and fellowship and discipleship and mission. You know, we often fail in our, in our marriages. We don't love our spouse like we should. We, we are harsh. We are disrespectful. We are selfish. We fail in our parenting. We're, we're angry. We're impatient. We, we say we're listening when we're not. Kids, we fail in our submission and honoring of our parents. We, we don't obey. We don't follow. We don't trust them. As, as leaders, those of us in, in leadership at the church or, or in other places, we often fail in, in making good decisions, in leading the right way, in, in leading for uh, the glory of God and not out of fear of man. We fail in our, in our witnessing. We maybe don't take the opportunity to share the gospel we should, or, or maybe we, we say or do something that compromises our witness. We, we, we often fail. The book of Joshua is a book about the people of God on the mission of God. And the book has some amazing success stories for the people of God. Some amazing high moments where God, through His people, uh, brings victory in that mission. But the book also has moments of failure. Not just moments of success to try to be encouraged by an emulate, but moments of failure where where we see the people of God not following God, disobeying God, failing in that mission. And, and this is just the, the realism of the Bible. Uh, I love this about the Bible, that the Bible knows who we are. The, the, the Bible knows human beings. It knows that, that 
we will fail. It doesn't, it doesn't scoff at that, it doesn't deny that, but it speaks into that reality that, that we are sinners who will fail. And, and even with these stories of both success and failure, there's also behind that comes, comes words of grace and words of faithfulness and words of encouragement and instruction for us when we fail. So this morning we are getting back into this series in the book of Joshua after a two-week break for the Reformation series we did. And so we're in Joshua 9. The series is called Receiving the Promises. Just let me remind you where we've been. The people of God, the Israelites, are entering the promised land. God has brought them, miraculously so, over the Jordan. They had a high moment in conquering Jericho. Uh, through, through, through trusting God's plan, and then they had a low moment as they found out that one of them, Achan, took some of the devoted things. God turned against them in judgment and wrath until they dealt with that sin. But then God, again, spoke mercy and grace to them and, and, and said, I'm still with you, and I can still use you, and I'm still for you, and, and came behind their defeat at I with another victory. Chapter 8 ended with Israel renewing the covenant and reading the, the law and remembering that God is with us still. And this leads us to Joshua chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward the Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So you remember, church, that the inhabitants of the land, as, as Israel was entering the land, they were melting with fear because of the Israelites. They, they had heard about Egypt, and they had heard about what happened on the other side of the Jordan with the two kings on the Transjordan. And they, they had heard about how God parted the waters, and they were trembling with fear until they saw that Israel was defeated by I. Because of their sin, Israel was defeated. God, again, is merciful, and, and chapter 8 shows us that they did eventually conquer I, but we see a different mentality in the inhabitants of the land now as Israel continues to march forward. Now, all these kings, they're not trembling with fear. They are unifying together to fight Israel. Before, Israel faced all these small outposts, all, the, all these different cities and their individual kingdoms to fight, but now all of these kingdoms are becoming allies. And, and, and their mindset is we are going to come together as one and stop Israel. And Israel faces a greater threat than they face so far in this whole book, as they face the allied forces of the Canaanites. That is, all of those peoples are allied except for one. There's one people group in this that, that does not join the alliance. And we see this in verse 3 and following. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So unlike the other peoples in the land, the Gibeonites don't join the alliance to fight Israel. Instead, they attempt to deceive Israel. 
There's some background necessary here. Remember, Israel was charged with the specific task of conquering the people who live in the land. The people in the land, God had declared that the time had come that he was going to execute his judgment on them because of generations and generations of increasing sinfulness and unrepentance. And so as God gave the land to Israel, part of the mission was to was to destroy the peoples of the land. They were not allowed to make peace treaties with these peoples. They were only to devote them to destruction. And this includes the Gibeonites. Now, for those people who were outside the land, God did give instructions that if they're outside the land, first offer a peace treaty with them. It's in Deuteronomy 20. He says if they're outside the land, offer terms of peace with them. And if they do, then they will become your servants. And so this is the background. It seems like the Gibeonites know all this. It seems that they understand that because they are residents of the land, that they face God's judgment, just like Jericho did and just like I did. But they seem to also know that if they can convince Israel that they are not from the land, that they have a chance to survive. And so what do they do? They dress up like foreigners who have traveled from far off land. They've got holes in their sandals They've got holes in their clothes. They've got stale bread. Their wineskins are are worn out. Everything about them looks worn out and and like they've been on a long journey to get to where they are. And and they come to Israel in in this worn out condition and they say, make a covenant with us. Make a peace treaty with us. And so this is an attempt of one of the peoples who's under God's judgment, who Israel is called to conquer, to deceive Israel so that they can live. Read verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So they're they're suspicious at this point. And so they say to Joshua, We're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who live in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they've burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. And so, again, the, the Israelites suspect at first, maybe, maybe something's up here. They, they, they say, how, how do we know you're not from here? It's amazing that they actually ask this question. How do we know you're not deceiving us? But the Gibeonites are very convincing, aren't they? First, they say, we're your servants. We're, we're not here to fight. We're, 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 we're your servants. And then... They elaborate on their story and look at what they say. They say, we have heard what the Lord your God did. We've heard a report of what he did in Egypt and what he did beyond the Jordan. Now, of course, what do they not mention that they've heard? They don't mention that they've heard about I or that they've heard about Jericho because that would give them away, right? Even though we know from verse 3 that's exactly what they heard and why they're doing this. They don't don't mention that they know those things. They're keeping up their deception and so, so they say, we've heard about the Lord and, and we came from a distant land because we want to submit to him and become your servants. Look at our clothes. Look at our sandals. Look at our bread. See the evidence? This, what we're saying is true. Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions. 
sample some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the deception worked. Israel tried their bread. It truly was old and stale bread. They looked at their clothes. They really were worn through. They listened to their story. It all seemed believable. And so they made a peace treaty with the Gibeonites to let them live. They swore to them. They made a covenant with them. Now that's all the things they did do. Look at what the author says they didn't do, however. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. When a narrator inserts a comment like that, it's intentionally showing us a key to what we're seeing. And and by telling us this, the author is saying that they should have asked counsel from the Lord. He's telling us if they would have asked counsel from the Lord, then the Lord would have revealed to them they were being deceived. And he's telling us that because they didn't ask counsel from the Lord, they, they failed to discern the truth and they broke the Lord's instructions. This story represents a a moment of failure for the people of God on the mission of God. This shouldn't have happened, and it wouldn't have happened if they had sought the Lord as they ought to have done. They, They trusted in their own wisdom, and it led them to a disobedient treaty with one of their enemies. Now, at this point, we can make a rather straightforward application of this text, can't we? We can apply this very clearly and say, beware of trusting in your own wisdom. Don't do that, right? Don't trust in your own wisdom like Israel did. I mean, they they even had a hint in their minds that maybe they're tricking us, but they relied on their own wisdom. They relied on their own insight. We need to be aware of that. We should live in continual dependence on the Lord, not just when we think we need Him, but all the time. So that's the problem. Israel didn't think they needed to ask counsel from the Lord. It was clear to them. But if we only ask counsel from the Lord when we think we need Him, we're prone to do the exact same thing. We don't just ask counsel from Him when we, when we feel like we don't have it under control. We should always go to Him. Always seek Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Israel did not do this. And I believe Joshua would say this to us. He would say, Yes, for sure. We, we didn't do that. We should have done that. You should do that too. But as the story continues to unfold, the focus isn't on what Israel should have done to prevent their failure. It's the interesting thing about the story. We can, we can definitely apply this to us and say we shouldn't, they shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't do this either. But that's not where the story goes. The focus is not on how they could have prevented it. The focus is on what they should do next in light of that failure. The focus is on moving forward when they failed. The reality is that we will have moments when we fail to fulfill God's purposes, just like Israel failed. We will lean on our own understanding when we should have sought the Lord, and we will fail, we will sin, we will disobey. The people of God will sometimes fail to do what we are called to do. And while we can and we should learn from our failures... We also need to know how to move forward when we fail. And this is where the story takes us from here on out. There's two things that we need to do in order to move forward when we fail. Two things that we'll see in the following verses that we need to do whenever we fail in order to move 
forward from there. First, we need to renew our commitment to faithfulness. We need to renew our commitment to faithfulness. Let's continue to read in verses 16 and following. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Tephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We're very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for their congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Okay, so Israel realizes very quickly that the Gibeonites did deceive them. That They realize that they do live in the land. And when that happens, they, they travel to their cities. And it says that they didn't touch them, but they, but they grumbled. It says they murmured against the leaders. And later, we, we, it becomes clear what they were murmuring about. The Israelites wanted to kill them. They said, they tricked us. They're our enemies. We should go and conquer them, just like we were supposed to in the first place. But Joshua and the leaders know that this is not an option. They, they know the truth that two wrongs don't make a right. And so, so that they shouldn't have made that covenant with them. That was wrong. That was a failure. They know that they must be faithful to that covenant moving forward because the Lord's own reputation is at stake. They swore by the Lord. And so to go back on that covenant is to, is to say something about the Lord himself to the Gibeonites. So, so, so they tell them, we, we cannot touch them. We cannot kill them. We made a covenant with them. And so what do they do? Well, Deuteronomy says nothing about what to do when you make a treaty with someone in the land. Because that wasn't supposed to happen. But what it does say is when you make a peace treaty, here's the terms you should come to. And Deuteronomy 20 is very clear that in this case with someone that's outside the land, that the people that you make a treaty with are to become the servants in the temple and the servants of Israel, drawers of water, cutters of wood. That's from Deuteronomy. It's not just like Joshua's idea in the moment. He's just following the script that God gave in Deuteronomy. So what do they do? They, they, they look for this principle in God's word to apply to this situation. Just as Deuteronomy instructs, they apply the word of God to this new situation. And, and, and what we're seeing here is this. Israel is committed after this failure to continue forward in faithfulness. So, so, so when we sin, 
we create a whole new framework for ourselves of consequences in our lives. And there's no going back. There's no mulligan. There's no redo for that. We have a whole new situation that we face when we sin and when we fail. And the principle here is, is that when we find ourselves in that new framework, we must move forward in faithfulness within that new framework. So again, if I mean, just take a, a clear example. Maybe say that say that someone um, is in a relationship and, and and they get pregnant outside of marriage. It's a whole new reality for them. A believer, they they sin, they fail, they face this whole new reality. The only way forward is a renewed commitment to faithfulness with this child and all that God would say to take care of this new child. There's no going back. There's no getting out of it. Moving forward in faith is the renewed commitment. God, we're going to honor you in this situation, even though there are consequences to what we've done. This is what we see Israel doing. They, They failed. The situation never should have been, but once this new framework rose for them, they said, we are going to move forward with a renewed commitment to faithfulness. So how do we apply this to our own failings? Well, first, we don't see this explicitly in the text, but I believe that it is implied by their actions that that they realized what they did not do. They realized their sin of, of not inquiring of the Lord and that they sought his forgiveness and that they sought to make things right. And we know that God would say the first thing we should do when we fail is we should confess that failure to him. We should not hide it from him. We should not try to make things right on our own, but we should come to him and confess our failure, confess our sin, confess how we did not trust him and did not follow him. God does not want us to make it right on our own before we come to him, but he would call us to come to him in that moment and say, God, we messed up. We sinned, we failed, and we confess this to you. Second, we should accept the consequences of our actions. We should realize that because of what we did, this is our new reality. What's done is done, and we face a new situation. We need to accept that when we fail. We need to accept that, that we must move forward through this new framework, through this new situation. As many times as we might have regrets and wished we could do something differently, we need to accept that, that we did what we did, and now we must move forward and face the consequences. But then in that, we need to renew our commitment to the Lord. Renew our commitment to pray. Renew our commitment to search out His Word. Renew our commitment to follow His instructions. Renew our commitment to face that new situation in faithfulness to Him. Say that you're in a relationship and and you said hurtful words or you gossiped or, or, or there was a rupture in that relationship. You look back and you wish you didn't do that thing. But you did. And there's no going back. What, what do you do now? You confess that to the Lord. You accept that this is going to be a lot harder now than it should have been to have a good relationship with this person. But you say, God, what would you have me do? You search his word and you pray for his help and you move forward in faithfulness. Even though you failed, even though you sinned, you move forward facing that new situation. And, and the thing that we see in Joshua is that as we move forward with that renewed commitment in faithfulness, God shows Israel that he continues to be faithful to them. So it, it can be scary, can't it, to move forward sometimes after we fail. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to go. But God shows them that in spite of all the consequences, he will continue to help them. He will continue to be faithful to them. He will continue to provide for them. And so this leads to the second aspect 
of this text, the second thing that we need to do after we fail, one, we need, we need to renew our own commitment to faithfulness, but two, we need to remember God's continued faithfulness. We need to remember God's continued faithfulness to us. Look what happens next in chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Notice there what he says, we're going to strike Gibeon. Now, then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So this is really, really interesting, isn't it? Because of their peace treaty with the Israelites, the Gibeonites now find themselves on the wrong side of things. This big alliance that has formed against Israel is now setting their sights on Gibeon. Because they have allied with Israel. And so what do the Gibeonites do? They they know they have made this treaty with Israel. And so they called their new ally Israel for help. This is another consequence of Israel's actions. Now, Israel is bound to fight for the Gibeonites because of what they've done. But again, they, they, are, they are committed to faithfulness, and so they do. Joshua gathers their men, and they go up to fight. But Joshua, we'll see, is fearful. Think about the last time that Israel sinned against the Lord and then went and fought. What happened? They were soundly defeated at I. And so far in this story... You recognize this, we have not heard one word from the Lord. All the way through chapter 9 up to this point in chapter 10, God has not spoken yet. And Joshua is probably wondering at this point, what's going to happen? We sinned. We were supposed to destroy these people. Now we're having to fight for them, but we're we're seeking to do our best in in a renewed commitment to follow the Lord, to, to be faithful. But what's going to happen now? In verse 8, God does speak. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Very, very familiar words, right? If you've been following Joshua, you know how God continually says to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. He's been saying that since the very beginning of the book. Every time they face an enemy, God says, I've given them into your hands. God repeats the same message to them, and it shows that he, he says, I'm going to continue to be faithful to you. I'm going to continue my promises to you. And then look what happens. He doesn't just say it, but look what happens. Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent at Beth Huron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda 
And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Zedekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The Lord not only tells Joshua, I'm with you, they won't stand before you, but then the Lord fights for them. The Lord becomes a faithful warrior for Israel in this moment, sending down hailstones so that more of their enemies are dying because of the hailstones than because of what Israel's doing. He not only is speaking reassurance, but he is demonstrating through his actions that he continues to be faithful to Israel in spite of their failure. And this demonstration of God's faithfulness, it does an amazing thing in Joshua's disposition. So far in the story, this thing about Joshua was prayerless, and he failed Israel as he led them, and and he's afraid of what's going to happen next. But, But all of a sudden, we see a whole different Joshua come out in what we read next. Look at verses 12 through 15. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, did not hurry about except for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. So as Joshua is in this battle, he's heard this reassurance from the Lord. I am still with you, don't be afraid, I'm going to fight for you. And then he sees God fighting for them. He sees the hailstones coming, he sees what's happening. Joshua is convinced that God is with them, God is for them, God is fighting for them. And he also sees their window of opportunity seems to be closing. Now, there's a lot we don't know about the details of this day. Was it early in the morning and the sun is about to come up? Or was it, was it coming to be nighttime and he wanted the sun to stay up? We don't know all the details, but we know that the window of opportunity was closing. They were defeating their enemy. But for some reason, with where the sun was, they were not going to be able to continue the battle unless the sun, literally, stopped its movement, and the moon stopped its movement. And I don't know how many of you would ever think to do this in that moment. I wouldn't think to do this. But Joshua thinks, I'm going to ask God to stop the sun and the moon. And he speaks to the Lord, and he says, sun, stand still, and moon, stop. And what happens? The sun stands still, and the moon stops. For about a day, it says, while Israel finishes the battle. Now, scientifically, we have no clue what's going on with that, and there's all sorts of problems, but, but if you believe that there's a creator God who's in control of all things, then it's no problem. You know, someone might say, if the sun stopped, that means the earth stops rotating, we'd all fly off the earth. If God can stop the earth from rotating, he can keep our feet planted on the earth as well, don't you think? I mean, there's no problem for us if we believe God is in control of these things. It's, it's a bona fide miracle that Joshua asks the Lord to do, and the Lord does. And what we see in Joshua in this moment is someone that moved from not praying at the beginning of the story now to this bold prayer. Someone who failed to now someone who is, is praying and, and receiving the victory for his people. Someone who is afraid, who now is courageous and confident. And where does that come from? Where did that come from? This was Joshua's 
response to seeing the faithfulness of God. This was the effect of God's faithfulness on Joshua. This newfound boldness, this newfound faith came after being reassured of God's faithfulness to him. And this should be the effect of God's continued faithfulness on our hearts. I think that we stop too soon in our meditation on God's faithfulness. We fail. We've been faithless. And we're comforted by the fact that God is faithful to us. We're comforted by the fact that he forgives us. We're comforted by the fact that he's not against us. But we don't think about it long enough to realize he's not only not against us, he's for us. He's absolutely for us. And and, and he's going to help us and he's going to fight for us and we can actually move forward, not shrinking back because of what we've done in our failures, but, but boldly moving forward because of his faithfulness to us. Praying prayers like sun stand still. Even after our own failures, having the boldness to pray that way. Where does that come from? It comes from knowing that, that God's not looking at me and basing His answer to my prayer on my successes and failures. He is basing His answers to my prayer on His faithfulness to me, His faithfulness to His promises. We so easily evaluate our own walks and how we're doing and then subtly act as if God is responding to us based on our works based on whether we're succeeding or failing. And if we're doing well in our walk, we might be more bold to pray, more bold to evangelize, more bold to seek Him. And if we fail, we're, we shrink back. But God says, no, you should continue to move forward because I am faithful to you, because of my faithfulness to you. And that's what we see with Joshua. We see this transformation from, from a prayerless, fearful man to a, a bold, praying, uh, miracle-asking man who, who, in this prayer, and in this, in this moment of amazing faith, sees God do this miracle for Israel. He, he has the courage to pray, son, stand still, because God demonstrated his faithfulness to Israel. And so how do we apply that? It just means don't shrink back in fear after your own failures. Don't shrink back from ministry after your own failures. Don't shrink back from leading your family if you fail to lead your family. Don't shrink back from, from pursuing the lost if you have failed to pursue them before. Don't shrink back from these things because of your failure. Be bold in these things because of God's faithfulness. He's not just not against us. He is for us. He's faithful to us. One final question for us this morning, more of a personal question at this point, is that that is this. How can you be assured, you personally, that God will be faithful to you when you fail? Like, this doesn't really make sense when, when you think about it. How, how is God faithful to Israel in this moment? God has not changed. He, he is, is still a, a, a righteous God, a holy God, a God who does not leave sin unpunished? How does he seem to continue in his faithfulness to them after they were unfaithful to him? And how, when we fail, can we know that God will continue his faithfulness to us? And this is where I think we can learn something from the Gibeonites. I've really been wrestling, church, with with the Gibeonites' part in this story this week. Uh, Sometimes it's like, this is just like Rahab, um, who, who heard about what the Lord did, 
and instead of opposing God's purposes, uh, sought protection and sought, sought salvation. Because um, you see that in the Gibeonites. You see that they heard what was happening, and instead of allying with the other nations and opposing Israel, that they realized we, we need to become their servants. And, and so that's good. That, 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 that's faith. But then you see this deception going on as well. You see, you see this this wrong plan to carry that out, right? And 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 just you just don't know what to make of it. They're cursed in the end to be servants in Israel. And it seems like they had a better option, which was to come in and actually be fully incorporated into Israel like Rahab was. But at the same time, they don't die, do they? They live. And so, what do we make of the Gibeonites? Well, later in the Old Testament, we read of King Saul in 2 Samuel 21, and King Saul seems to forget about the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites. And, and so, in his uh, unwarranted zeal, King Saul leads the Israelites to go fight the Gibeonites, and, and they kill a bunch of Gibeonites. Now, this is generations later. All the people in Joshua are no longer around. And Saul leads the Israelites to kill the Gibeonites. And what happens is that God himself defends the Gibeonites. God sends a famine on Israel for four years, I believe what the text says in 1 Samuel 21, until David finally makes it right. And I think that tells us something about God's stance toward the Gibeonites in all of this. That, yes, they should not have been deceptive. And they had a better option to, to just come and say, we want to worship the Lord and be part of Israel. God would have received them, just like he received Rahab in that. But they still did have this, this fundamental posture of faith that God is who he says he is. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. And we need to find salvation in him and in his people. That, that was fundamental to the giving. And God was faithful not only to the Israelites, but to the Gibeonites. As, as Israel fought for Gibeon, God fought for Israel. And later, as Israel fought against Gibeon, God fought for Gibeon. We, we see God being faithful to them because they put their faith in Him and submitted to His chosen people. Okay, here's, here's what we can learn from this. Today, salvation is not found in the nation of Israel. We don't find salvation today by submitting to a national entity, but rather we find salvation today in the Savior who came from the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ. Just as the Gibeonites put themselves in submission to the chosen people of God, so today we are all called to put ourselves in submission and faith to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one through whom God is faithful to us. He's faithful to us in Jesus alone, in Christ alone. God does not just brush our failings under the rug and say, that's okay. No, God sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for those failings, to die for those sins, to, to bear the curse for us. He died on the cross for every sinful failure and he rose again so that in Him we don't bear those consequences. And we can be assured of God's faithfulness whenever we fail. Whenever we fall, whenever we sin, we can be assured God will continue His faithfulness to me because we are in Christ. 
because we are in Christ. And so the question this morning, if you're wondering, will God be faithful to me when I fail? Because we all will. We all will fail. The question is, have you submitted yourself to Jesus? Have you given yourself to Jesus? Have you come and put your faith in Him and your trust in Him and said, even though I know I don't deserve your faithfulness, God, Jesus died for my failings and for my sins, and He rose again, and I submit my life to Him. If you are in Christ, God will continue His faithfulness to you every time you fail. And so when you fail, remember that God is faithful, and He's faithful in Christ alone. Turn to Him with a renewed commitment to follow Him. Rejoice in His saving death and resurrection. And then church, boldly move forward by faith in His faithfulness. God's faithfulness should embolden us to live for His glory and to pursue the joy of all people. We're not called today to, to, to pray for the sun to stand still and the moon to stop. We are, we are called to pray much greater things. Pray that God would be merciful to the lost. To pray that God would transform those who are dead in their sins. And here's the thing. If you look back at this text, what is the miracle of that final story? Is it that the sun stood still? To us, it seems like that's the miracle, right? But look at verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. The miracle is not that the sun stood still. The miracle is that God listened to a man's prayer. That's the miracle of that story. And God listens to our prayers in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. He listens to our prayers not because of us, but because of Christ. We can be bold in how we pray, and He'll be faithful to us even when we fall. So again, don't shrink back, church. But because He's faithful to you, be bold and move forward and give yourself to His purposes. As the people of God and the mission of God, we will fail. But we can move forward, and we will ultimately succeed because God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and thank you for stories like this that let us draw draw us in and, and, and make us think and, 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 Lord, ultimately show us so much of ourselves. But not only that, they, they show us our need for Christ and they show us your grace to us, Lord. We thank you that your word not only tells us the bad news that we often fail, but it comes behind that with the grace that you are a faithful God in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us not shrink back. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to try to uh, get out of the consequences that we've made for ourselves, but help us to put our trust in you, to renew our commitment to be faithful to you, and to be bold in this world, knowing that you are faithful to us in Jesus alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.